Most federal agencies are just weeks away from imposing higher-in-the-office requirements. This comes with complications, though. Agencies also have to measure productivity to make sure in-office work actually makes sense. The House Oversight Committee is bearing down on a few agencies for some deeper data there. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman attended the latest hearing. She joins me now with more. And, Drew, there's been a lot of back and forth on this for months. I keep calling it a tug of war. Why did the House hold this particular hearing? So this was a subcommittee hearing, the Subcommittee on Government Operations and the Federal Workforce as part of the House Oversight Committee. And they're really wanting to look at a lot more data from federal agencies. So for a little bit of background, the committee sent a series of about 25 letters to agency heads a couple months back looking for deep data after they felt dissatisfied with what the Office of Personnel Management could offer. Now they've gotten the majority of responses from agencies to those letters. Just three agencies have yet to respond to the committee's requests, but the hearing that they held just this week was sort of a first-round look at some of that data. The And the four agencies that were in attendance, Chairman Pete Sessions of the subcommittee called those that responded in good faith. So these are a couple good examples, I would say, of, of what the committee was hoping for from those letters. Chairman Sessions explained a little bit more about why he's taking that deeper dive into the data. There was never really any evidence other than references to a survey of federal employees about what the impact was and about how the American public felt like they were doing business with agencies across the government. We believe, and I believe, that telework can be helpful to agencies to help them carry out their mission. It does not mean every single agency would necessarily have that same success. And that's Chairman Pete Sessions of the Subcommittee on Government Operations and the Federal Workforce. And Tom, the four agencies that were in attendance for this hearing were the Department of Homeland Security, National Science Foundation, NASA, and the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. That's good. So they got a mixture of big departments and smaller or mid-sized agencies and agencies with a niche mission. So interesting. Some of the witnesses did offer data, though, as you said, some examples. What were they talking about? And what kind of data did they offer? So we can take DHS for an example. During the COVID-19 pandemic, they had about 64% of their workforce that continued to work in person. So a big chunk of their workforce never went home. They do have a lot of front-facing positions where telework is just not possible for much of DHS's workforce. Uh, But after the pandemic, their most recent data as of July 2023, about 73% of DHS employees report in person every day. So it has gone up a little bit since the end of the pandemic. And then if you look at even employees at DHS who aren't necessarily reporting every day in person, you still have 85% of DHS's nationwide workforce going into the office or reporting on site at least 50% of the time. So all of that comes from DHS's payroll data. So they are able, like many other agencies, to take that more granular look at the data. And then that's the, the numbers that they gave to the committee just this week. And the witnesses also said that this whole situation is fluid and that their plans could change. And what are some of the plans? Did we find that out? Right. A lot of agencies have been announcing these return to office changes over the past couple of months, and these are going to be taking effect this month, September, as well as in October. So, for example, the National Science Foundation, they're one agency that is actually increasing in-person work 
in late October is when they're going to be starting to do that. They're moving from two days per pay period, and pay per- periods are two weeks, up to four days per pay period for all of their employees. And National Science Foundation Chief Operating Officer Karen Marangel explained what she hopes to get out of that in-person work. During those days, our employees are expected to collaborate, work together, uh, do the types of mentoring, network building within the agency that is more difficult to do when they are not on site. And so why is four days the, the, the correct number in order to be able to collaborate with one another? Well, unfortunately, there there is no exact science that points to a correct number. We know that it needs to be more than what we we feel like it needs to be more than what we have now, which is two days per pay period. And so we're moving to four. Yeah, somewhere between never and always being in the office is the right amount, I guess. And, you know, in the House, this has been kind of a partisan divide. And yet Pete Sessions, who is a Republican, seemed open minded about telework. So is it a total partisan divide? Sounds like maybe not. Right. If you heard him earlier, he did say that telework isn't necessarily all bad and it really depends on the individual agency. That's something that actually there is a little bit of bipartisan overlap here between Democrats and Republicans. And, you know, he did mention that the Show Up Act, that's the bill that Republicans uh, in the House passed mostly along party lines earlier this year, that he pointed to the fact that that wouldn't actually you know, completely eliminate telework for federal employees, but simply reduce it back to pre-pandemic levels. That has gotten a lot of negative attention, that bill, but he did kind of emphasize here that it's not, at least from his perspective, maybe this doesn't apply to every single Republican out there, but for him, you know, telework is something that can still be a tool. And actually, Representative Jerry Connolly, who was another subcommittee member, commended the the chairman as well here. You made a really thoughtful distinction that I want to reemphasize between universal remote working in a pandemic and a structured telework program. Those are two very different things, and I really appreciate the chairman making that distinction. Yes, sir. Not all of our colleagues do. We need telework. We need telework for lots of reasons. Oh, shucks. That was nice. <laughs> nice exchange between the two. And so now the committee has at least data from four agencies. They've heard testimony. What are they going to do next? Next, they are going to hold another hearing in just a couple of weeks. They haven't said which agencies will be testifying, but they are going to have a couple of agencies who they said they are unhappy with the data that they provided. So we're going to see maybe a little bit different conversation in the weeks to come from from the subcommittee here. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. Thanks so much. Thank you. And be sure to check out her story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell, retired Army Major General Tammy Smith felt for the first time that she could lead her team authentically. Smith, a longtime leader and one of the military's highest-ranking openly gay officers, joined Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to share her perspective on collaborative and genuine leadership. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by retired U.S. Army Major General Tammy Smith. Major General Smith, welcome, and thank you for joining me. Shane, it's great to talk to you this morning. Your career in the military spans more than 30 years. Was there ever a moment or point in your career that changed your trajectory, and what was that? I have a very unique one that occurred that did change my tra- trajectory in many ways, and that is at my about 25th year of service, um, 
the law known as Don't Ask, Don't Tell that prohibited people who identified as gay from serving in the military, that was repealed. And now you could be open in the military. And soon after that happened, I married Tracy, my wife, and I was also notified I'd been selected for promotion to Brigadier General. And at that time, there had been no general or admiral who had come out or identified their family in any way that you would, you would know that they were gay. And so just by timing, I ended up being the first openly gay general in the U.S. military. And what changed for me in that is I still had all the things that I had to do, of course, as a general, which was a lot of hard work that went into that. But for the first time in my life, I was able to lead authentically. 25 years, I had compartmentalized a part of me, and I had hidden things, and I had not been my full self at work, and I had not been my full self with my coworkers. And the repeal of that law and the opportunity then to be the sort of LGBTQ champion in the Department of Defense as a senior leader, what that did is it got me closer to my authentic leadership style and my authentic self because I was more comfortable in my own skin and I wasn't looking over my shoulder at all times thinking that I might have said something that would reveal what my true life was and then lead to my dismissal from the military. Having that weight off of my shoulders, not having to hide who I was at work, made me such a better leader than I had been in the 25 years that I had served previously. It's fascinating to hear your story about that because I was alive during all that and followed it as well. It's a a wonderful thing. Your career included a lot of firsts. You were the first female general officer, as you said, um, to serve in the 8th Army headquarters level position. Uh, you already talked about being um, the first LGBTQ general and flag officer. H- how does being first, how did that influence your leadership style? I was first in a lot of places through no fault of my own um, by virtue of having joined the military in the 80s when there weren't a lot of women who were choosing that as a career path. So there were many things, even as a young person, where I would show up and I would be the only woman who was in that particular unit or doing that particular type of training. And what you get as a first is you, you assume this mantle of being a role model for, I don't know if it's your, your group or yourself, and in these roles of first, I would have to say that complete competence was always expected because you were elevated a bit and people noticed you more because they knew you as the first. And so you, you just gained extra attention in that. But with that, that attention brought a great deal of responsibility. And you've said in the past that your interest in leadership dates all the way back to high school when you first joined Future Farmers of America. And how did that early education, that organization, change your path later in life? Future Farmers of America, well, it's certainly to teach people about agriculture, but it's also it teaches people to be leaders so that in the agricultural world, people entering into that as an industry have the skills uh, to be leaders in that world. 
And I loved learning about speaking. I loved learning about being on a team. There were many things that I learned about leadership early in high school through FFA that suited me well. They are skills that I used all the way up through two-star general. And one of the one that jumps out the most at me is communication. I mean, we already talked about how it's important to be competent, but sometimes your competence comes from the presence that you project, and a lot of that presence comes from how you are able to communicate. So in times when I had uncertainty, I could convey confidence through my communication skills in a way that would get me through some ambiguity and things would turn out all right. But those skills go back, those are base skills that I learned way back in high school and through my association with FFA. It, it's really great and refreshing to hear you meld those two concepts of confidence and competence. Because really both are required for um, expansion as a professional but also into leadership roles. I think so because if you're if you're the leader in the role, people want to trust, and so your competence certainly informs a bit of that trust. But your ability to communicate that and to speak to your team in a language that your team understands and to be able to adjust for that, I think that that informs that trust a great deal, which is what produces the results: is the trust within the team. Excellent, excellent. Uh, what's one piece of advice that you would go back? And tell yourself if you were starting uh, again in your career. When I started my career, of course, well, I certainly had some skills. I, w- I wasn't a rounded, informed, wise leader of any sort. And I think that people have a leadership style that suits their personality uh, until they learn more skills. And for me, I was a collaborative leader. And I always have been a collaborative leader, but right from the beginning about what I would tell myself to do differently. Sometimes when you are a young leader with a team with direct responsibility and direct reports, sometimes collaborative leadership feels to the team like you can't make a decision. Sometimes at that level of leadership, what the team needs is for you to just tell them what you want done by what time. And so I'm going to say that I wasn't as effective as a younger leader in those situations where I was in these direct leadership roles because my tendency towards collaboration um, frustrated the team a bit. But when we jump ahead 25, 30 years, collaboration and the willingness to take a little bit more time with decisions that impact things on a longer timeline, those are exactly the skills that you need. So I would tell my younger self, be a little bit more direct, have a bit more awareness of where you are in the structure of the organization and the timelines that you're working in, and don't be afraid to be a little bit more direct um, as a young leader, even if your natural style is a bit more collaborative. That is excellent. And as somebody who's looked at and studied leadership over the years, there are many different leadership styles, everything, many different formally studied leadership styles and collaboration, situational. I, I, I love how you put it in context. It's not that one is good or bad, but depending upon your role and where you are in your career and those who work for and with you, yeah. you can change to you, meet the needs. You definitely can. And the whole 
timeline is important when you are choosing your leadership style to get the results that you want, because it's all, of course, results-driven. And in some cases, and this was true in military leadership and true in, in many places, is sometimes the urgency of the decision doesn't allow for the collaboration because a missile is coming in or, you know, something, something is timed in, in a financial type of way and you have to hit a particular timing point. And so you, you've got to make these decisions quickly. But sometimes making quick decisions, I, I talk often that it's easy to make a decision it's harder to make a good decision. And you have to take into consideration the timeline that your decision is going to impact, and that will influence the style of leadership that you choose to come to that decision point, if you can kind of follow my logic there. I think it's fascinating. And, and maybe what you're also saying is that part of leadership, um, a, a never-to-be-forgotten dynamic, is, is judgment. You know, there's a judgment component to all of this that you just mentioned. You're, you're um, making decisions using judgment as far as what's the best leadership role for this moment, for this decision. Yeah, I think there is a lot of judgment in that, and it goes back to that quest for competence because as your skills improve, your judgment will improve because you you've peeked around the corner a little bit, you've been exposed to more things, and you are able to exercise judgment in a way that would have been impossible when I first started. Um, I think that that experience certainly informs judgment, which is why sometimes it, when you're looking at somebody at the executive level, it looks so easy for them. You know, They see the big pieces earlier. That's because for probably 30 or 40 years, they've been looking at all the little pieces and in some of this, then their judgment becomes almost intuitive to them because of the experience that they had gathered over that time frame. Perfect. What, is there a figure, either from your personal life or maybe in history, that has been an inspiration, that has inspired your leadership style? It's somebody who no one has probably heard of, and that's my brigade commander, Colonel Pullen, who... I was exposed to early in my career as an officer. He was a Vietnam veteran, and in his role as brigade commander, what he wanted to teach all of us was attention to detail for consequential decision-making. And so he would ask very specific questions, such as when you get to the rifle range and you offload the buses, which side of the bus are the soldiers going to come off of? Because then that was whether or not you might need a road guard to cross the road over to the range and that sort of thing. But what he would tell us is that leaders will make life and death decisions based on the information that you provide them. So make sure that your information is correct when you provide it to them. And that stuck with me throughout my career is that when I was either informing a decision maker or if I was the decision maker, the question from Colonel Pullen always came up is like, is that what you think or is that what you know? Tell me how you know it. Meaning, did you see it? Did you touch it? Did you read the same report? And, and just to understand that, especially in the military, that line of work, that the decisions that are often made are, are literally life and death types of decisions. 
Excellent. Excellent advice. Um, General Tammy Smith, it's been an honor and a privilege to meet you and talk with you and, and listen to you share uh, your leadership journey with us. Thank you very much for your time. It's great to talk to you. Thanks. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and we will talk to you next time on Lessons in Leadership podcast. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.